Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Dan Eikenson. I'm the director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. That, that, that's my day job. Uh, but in reality, I love history. I love reading books about history. And when people write books about history of trade policy, uh, I think it's kind of custom made for me. So uh, when the author is uh, somebody like, like, like Doug Irwin, who has written six excellent books. Right? Six is correct, right, Doug? Six-ish. Six that I've read. More or less. Yeah. About various uh, historical aspects of trade policy. Uh, of course I'm going to read it. Yeah. Frank Tausig, the famous Harvard economist, is the last person to have written, a, the last economist to have written sort of a comprehensive history of trade policy. But the last edition of his book, the eighth edition, uh, was published in 1931. So there's been a lot of history since then, and I think that was part of Doug's motivation for, for writing his book, uh, which is a really deep, uh, comprehensive, rich, colorful uh, analysis of, of, the, of the history of US trade policy. It was really uh, excellent to read. Look, it's a big read. It took me several weeks. I'm a slow reader. Uh, but uh, 693 pages of, of, of text with a lot of detail, uh, 185 pages of notes and references. It is very, very well documented. There are no pictures. Maybe, maybe a, couple of, uh, a couple of charts, maps, graphs, things like that, which were also uh, very cool. Um, so I think it couldn't have been published at a better time. There, right now, there is just a lot of confusion. Uh, trade policy discussions today seem extremely speculative, uh, noisy, sometimes, I think, ill-informed. Uh, and I, I believe that that has something to do with the uncertainty and the upheaval that's sort of been fomented by the current uh, administration on trade. So when each and every day we're bombarded uh, with um, you know, hyperbole and hysteria, uh, it's nice to be able to find a calm place to go. And I found Doug's book to do just that. It helped me to distinguish the, the trade policy signal uh, from the noise. So uh, in the book, Doug lays out this interesting and compelling history. Uh, he presents his thesis. He supports it well. Uh, throughout the book and occasionally, he offers some easy-to-follow economic analyses of long uh, debated questions uh, in, in trade policy history. So it's, 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 it's hard to make the case uh, that tariffs aided US industrialization. That we, we, we find from Doug's analysis here. It's long been debated. Hey, did, did the United States, did, did, did protectionism help the United States grow? I think Doug concludes that it grew in spite of it. Um, despite regional differences and regional preferences over, over trade policy, the agrarian South favoring free trade, the industrial North protection. The Civil War was not about tariffs. There's a lingering narrative out there that it was about tariffs. It was about slavery. Uh, it had nothing to do with tariffs. And, and, and Doug does an excellent job of demonstrating that. Smoot-Hawley did not cause the Great Depression. We hear some people say that. Uh, Doug demonstrates that it really didn't have anything to do with that. The, the tariffs that inspired retaliation from abroad may have complicated the recovery, uh, but it certainly didn't cause the Great Depression. There's another one that, you, that was not covered, another more contemporary debating point, and that question is, was Ronald Reagan a protectionist? That's an issue that seems to have split the Democratic Party. I know that 
Bob Lighthizer and others in the Trump administration like to claim Reagan as one of theirs, as a sort of a protectionist. And you know, Doug documents the protectionism that happened during his tenure, during the 1980s, but more or less characterizes it as uh, in defense of a, of a bigger free, uh, free trade picture. Uh, I noticed that uh, one of the people quoted in the book in, in the discussion of Reagan was Bill Niskanen. He's a former chairman of the board here at Cato. He was with us for a long time, recently deceased. Uh, he was former uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And he observed that for the, in 1984 was the first time since World War II that more trade barriers were raised than reduced. And this was all kind of characterized under this strategic retreat. So throughout our history, trade policy has been a source of bitter political conflict. This is Doug's thesis. The conflict has been based on regional economic uh, differences in regional economic endowments and interests. Uh, so the book asks and answers a bunch of questions related to that. What, what has shaped policy since the founding of the republic? Was it economic necessity, historical circumstances, political constraints, uh, exogenous shocks, all of the above? Uh, does trade policy influence economic outcomes? Uh, or does causation run in the reverse direction? So Doug's thesis is that despite these uh, conflicting and competing interests jockeying for power, trade policy has been remarkably stable uh, within each of these three eras that he's identified. Uh, and it's because of uh, a continuity of geographic interests and because our political system makes change very difficult. Uh, it turns out that you really need to have unified government if you want to have a dramatic change uh, in, in policy. We have it now. Uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, but the, 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 the three periods that Doug uh, breaks up our tariff history into are the three R's. So for the first, from the founding uh, until the Civil War, it was revenue. We were trying to raise revenue. The, the nascent government had no other sources of revenue. Uh, so the tariff served that purpose. Uh, and there were debates about how high the tariff should be. Uh, there was concern that if the, the, that when the government ran a budget, that that might lead to uh, excessive government spending and, and, a, and a too powerful a government. And that prevailed until, this, uh, until the Civil War, so the founding to the Civil War. Uh, after the Civil War, the main purpose of the, of, of, of the tariff became restriction, protection, protectionism. Um, the United States had gone through a transition. It uh, had a lot of industrial interests in the North. The lobbying industry sort of uh, uh, emerged, and there's some just very colorful characterizations about it here in the book uh, about uh, these sort of den of thieves uh, descending on hotels in Washington with their big cigars and, you know, just the, the caricatures. And uh, it's really, really, really outstanding. The, the third era occurred after the Great Depression uh, when the tariff's purpose became reciprocity. The U.S. economy was by then, had been for a while, the largest economy in the world. Uh, we were the number one exporter. Export markets were important. It dawned on us that having um, trade barriers made it harder for other governments to reduce their own barriers. Trade policy became sort of an adjunct of foreign policy in the Cold War. Uh, so, it, uh, so there was a sort of a consensus for liberalization that has prevailed until approximately now. Um, so let me just say a couple more words before turning this over. Uh, there are a lot of tidbits, and I think maybe I'll wait till our conversation. But, you know, we talk about it's important to look at the history of trade policy because it really does inform what's going on today. 
in this book, uh, it's the, the, the history of uh, the escape clause, safeguards is discussed. This you know, started in the, the early 1920s, some of the early manifestations of it. So President Trump, a couple days ago, announced that he's imposing safeguards on washers and solar equipment. What's the genesis of that? There's this narrative out there that this is just some random tool that the, the president is using. It's important to understand why it evolved, how it evolved, and it, did it have something to do with the fact that Congress started delegating more of its authority to the executive branch, and therefore the capacity for log rolling to get over uh, legislative hurdles disappeared. So in order to coax or to encourage members to support trade liberalization, there needed to be uh, something like an escape clause, a safeguard. If we're overwhelmed by imports, your industry needs, needs some support, well, it'll be available to you. So again, that's sort of like the strategic retreat that in the broader scheme of things, it was for the sake of trade liberalization. Um, there's a... I just want to say this before, before, before those of us who do trade policy for a living and those of us who write about it uh, become too full of ourselves. You know, after reading a book like this, I'm sure after writing a book like this, you just think about the importance of trade policy and how central it is to everything. And certainly in the early years, it was very, very uh, important. But Doug, throughout the book, cites these Gallup polls, which kind of made, made me laugh a few times. Uh, so he said, this Gallup poll in 1970 showed that 71% of respondents supported Cordell Hole's reciprocal trade uh, program, and 29% opposed it. So you're like, yeah, you know, people are, are into it. He says, but then he says, but only 10% of those surveyed understood the term reciprocal trade. <laughs> A Gallup poll in 1947 about the GATT asked, about the, the, the agreement that created the GATT, 63% uh, approved of the agreement, 12% opposed, 23% expressed no opinion. Only 34% of those surveys had heard of the GATT. So March 1962, a Gallup poll found 38% favored lower tariffs uh, in Kennedy's uh, Trade Expansion Act. 15% uh, were for higher tariffs, 18%. One of them kept about the same. 29% had no opinion, but only 13% had heard, were familiar at all with the details of the legislation. So while these trade policy battles have been going on, a lot of Americans are not all that familiar with what's been happening. Uh, so it's important that we, we, we pay attention to this, that we understand the genesis of the, and the, the rationale for Congress delegating some of its constitutional authority to the president. Seemed like a good idea for a long time, expedient at least. Maybe we have doubts when the person who occupies the White House has different ambitions. Um, so I would just say, it's a great book. It should be required reading for anybody that writes about trade that analyzes trade, including the media. And the timing is exquisite, I think, um, because it'll help us put, put Trump in perspective. I would just ask this, the three R's, the three periods that I've identified, I'm wondering whether we are on the cusp of a new period uh, and whether there's a new R, uh, perhaps the period of retribution. And uh, with that, I will stop talking. I'm gonna introduce uh, our, our, our speakers. Let me start with the commenter because Doug is going to speak first, so I'm a, when, I, when I'm done introducing him, he's just going to stand right up here. But Claude Barfield is uh, a trade policy fixture. He's been around for a long time. Uh, I don't mean that in yes. any pejorative sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
he's a trade policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, where he covers a range of trade policy, security policy, industrial policy issues. He's written many books and publications on trade remedies, high-tech protectionism, and broader trade subjects, including a, a book with Phil Levy called Swap, How Trade Works. Uh, Claude's uh, uh, been uh, around at, at AI, I think, since 1985. That's the way it looks from... The last job he had was uh, as a consultant at the uh, office of the trade representative. Uh, before that, Claude worked in the Senate. Uh, he was also deputy assistant secretary at HUD. And he also um, has written academic journal articles on the very subject at, at hand. So I'm going to let him talk more about that. But he's uh, eminently qualified to, to, to talk about this. Uh, Claude has a PhD from Northwestern. Our main speaker. Professor Douglas Irwin uh, is the John French Professor of Economics at Dartmouth. He earned his PhD from Columbia. Uh, in addition to the book we're discussing today, Clashing Over Commerce, he has authored five other books. I said six at the beginning because that's, I think that's what I saw on your website, but elsewhere I saw other things. Um, uh, and all these books he's written have been published at very prestigious academic presses. Free Trade Under Fire, its fourth edition, came out in 2015. Trade Policy Disaster, Lessons from the uh, 1930s, from 2012. Peddling Protectionism, Smoot-Hawley and the Great Depression from 2011. The Genesis of the Gat in 2008, which was co-authored. Against the Tide, and an Intellectual History of Free Trade in 1996. He's also written many articles uh, on trade policy in books and professional journals. Uh, Douglas is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and has also served on the staff of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and he's been a friend and advisor to the Cato Trade Center for nearly 20 years. So please help me welcome our author and main speaker, um, Douglas Irwin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doug. Actually, can I pull up the book just for a second? Yes, so except I, I don't have the, the, oh, that's fine. the that's cover. Fine. Yep. There you go. It's a pop for another purpose. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Dan, for that uh, kind introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here um, with Cato, which has done so much important work over the years on trade and conveying to the public the importance of trade and understanding trade policy. Um, there's so many people in this audience that uh, I owe a debt of gratitude to. Uh, I can't name you individually, but I've learned from you over the years in terms of your expertise in trade policy. I would just like to mention uh, Mac Dessler, whose book, uh, American Trade Politics, has been a, a classic. Uh, he was one of the readers for the University of Chicago Press in reviewing this. Um, but so many other people in this room have contributed directly and indirectly to this, uh, this book. Um, I just want to say uh, thank you for that. I should note that you know, this is, looks pretty thick and heavy and intimidating. It's only 673 pages of text because you have to take off the back third or so. And I must say that this, is, this published version is the abridged and condensed version. And that's the one I'll be talking about today because if you had seen the original version that I sent to the publisher, that they quickly sent back saying, there's no way we can publish this. You have to cut it 20%. Uh, that version will never uh, see the light of day. Uh, but I must say that when the publisher sent it back saying it needed to be uh, you know, major cuts to make this uh, viable, um, it brought tears to my eyes, uh, tears of, of gratitude. Because as I emailed back to them, thank you, I said, thank you for giving me the opportunity to spend another six months on this book which is exactly what I want to do, having just thought that I finished it. Um, so I, I did the necessary cuts, uh, tried to streamline it, and uh, what you see is the published result there. Uh, so what do I try to do with this book? I, I actually try to uh, provide a comprehensive 
uh, study of the economics and politics of U.S. trade policy history from the very beginning right up uh, through the Trump, uh, well, in, to the first few months of the Trump administration at any rate. Uh, but what do we mean by the term trade policy? So as I always tell my students, trade is a two-way street. It's the exchange of exports for imports. And there are two things government can do with regard to this economic activity. They can promote it with subsidies, or they can try to restrict it through taxes. So that gives us four actually elements of trade policy. Export subsidies and export taxes, import subsidies and import taxes. Well, it turns out we can eliminate three of these as being really important in terms of uh, the overall history. So export subsidies. Yes, we have the uh, Export-Import Bank since 1934. And actually, there's a, a very good uh, um, history of the Export-Import Bank uh, written by an economist or historian at George Washington University. Uh, so I don't deal with export subsidies in the book so much because they haven't been uh, very large. They haven't loomed large in, US, in terms of uh, US trade policy history. Uh, because of their budgetary cost, it's never been a major part of US trade policy history. What about export taxes? Well, the Constitution has a provision prohibiting export taxes. And there's a very interesting political economy story about why that provision got inserted in the Constitution. I tell that in the book, and it has to do with, once again, north-south politics that we'll see is very important. How about import subsidies? Well, no country has uh, had the government subsidize imports, pay people to bring foreign goods into their market, at least in any large extent. So import subsidies is just a trade policy instrument we don't see. And so this book focuses almost exclusively on import tariffs. And I do have some pictures here. So here's a picture of the average tariff on imports from 1790, right from the very beginning, uh, right up to uh, 2015 or 26, uh, 2015. And you can see that there's a lot of volatility. The tariff rates go up and down. And there's also two tariff series here illustrated. One is the red line, which is the average tariff on dutiable imports, which are those imports really that compete with domestic producers. And that's the line that I focus on mainly on the book. You can see there's sort of this up and down period before the Civil War. It's fairly flat and stable there in the late 19th century, early 20th century with some volatility. And then this big drop uh, starting in the 1930s and 1940s. The blue line, which is the average tariff on total imports, um, notice that diverges, it's much lower. And the reason for that is that after the Civil War, a whole category of imports that did not compete with domestic production, coffee, tea, tin, bananas, were exempted from taxes on imports, uh, and therefore the average tariff on total imports is much lower. But the red line is sort of what I focus on, and what I want to explain is what accounts for this volatility, what accounts for the, the rises and the falls, and how it's moved over time. Now, if you look at this, uh, it looks like there's a volatility, but I try to make the argument in the book that actually over three broad periods, there's a lot of continuity and stability in trade policy, despite the uh, up and down variation here. So here are some of the major themes of the book, and one which I think provides a little bit of uh, consolation to today in terms of we think that trade is a very divisive political uh, issue, um, a lot of contention between the parties, between the administration and Congress. Um, it's always been that way. It's always been that way to more or less degrees, but when you go back and look at the trade policy history, um, it's been a major issue in American politics. Presidential elections have been fought over it. The country is almost torn apart in the 1820s over uh, the tariff issue. Uh, the political dissension that we see today uh, is really nothing new. Why it appears to be new, however, is that after World War II, there was a brief period where there was a bipartisan consensus over the direction of US trade policy. They were still fighting over it, but the direction was fairly clear. And we're returning to a period now, a post-Cold War period, where trade politics has become much more contentious. So that's point one. It's always been a divisive political issue. 
Uh, and the second point, uh, which is that despite the, all that volatility that we see, there's a lot of underlying continuity in trade policy that is not evident by looking at the average tariff level. And so uh, we see that continuity. Now, in terms of trying to bring these two themes together, that there's a lot of volatility and, and conflict, and at the same time, there's a lot of underlying stability, I thought, how can we, uh, you know, how can you say both things at the same time, that there's conflict and volatility, but also stability? And so I thought about adopting from the uh, uh, HBO series of Veep the slogan, Continuity with Change, which if you ever watched that, uh, it's Selena Meyer's campaign slogan. Uh, but as they mock on that program, it's completely vacuous. Uh, how can it be continue? How can there be both continuity and change? And so I sort of said, I, I can't do that. Uh, however, I should note that Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull of Australia did adopt continuity with changes as a campaign slogan, and he won re-election. So there must be something to it, um, uh, and I don't quite use it extensively in the book, but uh, there is something uh, uh, to to that. So that raises the question: Why continuity? What accounts for uh, the continuity? First of all, I'll show you uh, the various ways in which. Uh, there is this underlying continuity in terms of U.S. trade policy. So what is its root source? So one theme throughout the book, and I won't give you, I can't sort of go decade by decade through the book, I'm going to sort of emphasize major themes here today, um, is that there's persistence in the geographic location of production for long stretches of U.S. history. If you go back and look at the census of 1810 and look at does the United States produce steel and where is it? We did, and it was produced in Pennsylvania. And you, obviously, if you went to the census much later on, we all know Pennsylvania has always been a location for steel production. Cotton production, always located in the south. It started out in South Carolina, of course, and moved gradually westward, westward to Texas. But the south and Mississippi always been the location of uh, production of, of uh, 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 cotton. So there tends to be a lot of geographic specificity in terms of the location of production of, of various uh, uh, producers. There's also persistence in the pattern of trade. That is the, what we're exporting and what we're importing. If you've taken a class in international trade theory, you've probably heard about David Ricardo and Hector Olin. These are sort of structural uh, uh, determinants of international trade that don't change quickly from year to year or even decade to decade. Uh, and so we exported cotton very early on from the 1820s after the introduction of the cotton gin. If you go look at the trade statistics for 1929, right before the Great Depression, the leading commodity export of the United States was cotton. So that's over 100 years of history where there's one crop that's, uh, where there's a major export. The United States has also always been a net importer of textiles. We have, a, have had a large textile industry in the United States, but we are never com internationally competitive in it. It was also always facing inter, uh, import competition. So what that does is the combination of those two things, geographic specificity and the location of production, and a very persistent pattern of trade, uh, which, of course, can change over time, but usually gradually, gives rise to persistent regional economic interests, and that gives rise to persistence in the congressional voting on trade policy over time. So let me just quickly run through these things and then show you how this manifests itself in terms of congressional votes. So this is a picture uh, that you've probably seen in your high school textbooks about you know, what is produced where in the United States. I can only speak for myself. I was incredibly bored and never took much notice of these maps. Now I think these maps are incredibly important because they're actually very informative about regional politics um, uh, in terms of trade interests. And this just gets at what we just spoke about, the steel industry in Pennsylvania and Ohio, cotton production in the South and things like that. Of that sort, these things are, are very persistent, which leads to cartoons such as this where senators and representatives from specific states represent the const their constituents and their constituents uh, have certain economic interests based on uh, the economic attributes and the uh, composition of production in those particular states. So you get congressional voting based on 
leading industries that are located in particular states. So the next chart that I want to show you is a picture of House voting on the tariff of 1828. 1828. And then congressional voting by House district on the tariff of 1929, which became known as the Smoot-Hawley tariff. And what you'll see here is the yeas and nays line up almost, not nearly identically, the correlation is about 0.7. But what this indicates is over 100 years of US history, where there are tremendous structural changes in the US economy in terms of moving from agriculture into manufacturing, new manufacturing arises. Basically, the trade policy voting pattern in Congress is very, very similar. And what you get is different elections at different times affecting marginal states and marginal districts, shifting them from one party to another so you can get these shifts in trade policy. But largely, for much of US history, the North has largely always supported uh, high tariffs, and the South and the West are relatively low tariffs. And that's a dynamic we still see today in terms of the Rust Belt uh, and other aspects of things. Now, unfortunately uh, for me, the trade policy, these votes have become a little bit more diffuse as manufacturing is spread to different states and states are no longer as regionally concentrated. So manufacturing industries can move and trade interests do change. Um, it's not quite as stark as this, but for many, many years, uh, a quick uh, north-south division is really uh, the way to understand uh, trade politics. And of course, this also led to persistence in the tariff structure of the United States. So this is just a simple scatter plot of what were the tariffs by different uh, parts of the tariff code in 1867. And then let's go to 1939, before the big tariff cuts introduced uh, by, under the GATT and what have you. And once again, very highly correlated. This is 70, 75 years apart. And yet the tariffs are pretty much lining up uh, the way they had been right after the Civil War. A lot of persistence uh, in terms of some of these underlying structural elements to US trade policy. However, um, there has been, have been important changes. And there have been important changes, uh, not just institutionally, but in terms of the direction and the major thrust of US trade policy. So as Dan mentioned, um, sort of an organizing device I had in my head is uh, what I call the three R's. Um, and this comes through in the book. Uh, when we ask, what purpose is a government trying to use trade policy for? Um, three things come to mind. Revenue, taxes on imports raise revenue. Um, restriction, taxes on imports can restrict imports to protect domestic producers from foreign competition. And reciprocity, <clears throat> you can use your tariff to try to bargain or negotiate with other countries for better access uh, for their markets. So these are the three R's of trade policy. And it turns out you can divide US trade policy history into three roughly 75-year periods so far in which each one of these uh, R's is the predominant thrust of US trade policy. So prior to the Civil War from 1790 to 1860, there was obviously protectionist pressure. The, uh, the US was a little bit interested in some reciprocity agreements. But the major purpose of Congress in setting the tariff code was to raise revenue for the federal government. And that's what the fights were about. So revenue is sort of the first phase of US trade policy history. From the Civil War until the 1930s, restriction of imports uh, to protect domestic producers becomes the major thrust of US trade policy. I'll talk about that transition in a moment. And then finally, we've entered into an era of reciprocity where we're willing to bargain with other countries and reach trade agreements to open up uh, market access. Now, throughout history, all three of these R's have been uh, elements of the US trade policy debate. So for example, in uh, late 1993, Senate passage of NAFTA was held up. Why? Because of revenue concerns. We'd lose the tariff revenue as a result of going into NAFTA, and the, the, uh, the Senate had to find some other way to uh, raise that revenue. So even in this uh, uh, reciprocity era, revenue still sometimes can be uh, a constraint a little bit uh, on trade policy. In terms of these uh, uh, transitions, 
Um, if we only have the, if we have these three R's, and uh, that means we've only had really had two transitions from uh, uh, the reciprocity to uh, restriction, and then restriction to, uh, pardon me, from revenue to re uh, restriction, restriction to reciprocity. The question is, what forces these uh, transitions in uh, the dynamics of trade policy? They're big exogenous shocks uh, to the political system that lead to a realignment in American politics. So one is the Civil War. So prior to the Civil War, the North and the South were roughly balanced in the American political system. So forces that wanted higher tariffs and lower tariffs roughly counterbalanced each other. After the Civil War, the Republicans in the North were politically dominant. They could institute the tariff regime they, they wanted, which was one of restriction of imports uh, through high tariffs. That wasn't dislodged. Huge status quo bias until the Great Depression, when there's another political realignment in favor of the Democrats, who uh, bring in Cordell Hull, as I'll mention in a moment, and uh, uh, begin to reduce uh, uh, tariffs and shift us in a different direction. So uh, I'll talk about some of the implications for today, but uh, to the extent that there is this uh, uh, status quo bias, um, I'd be inclined to say that the Trump administration may not be able to shift trade policy in a major direction, although it can do uh, some major damage. Um, it's not just that the underlying economic structure of the U.S. is leading to these economic interests and these voting patterns, but there's also a lot of political persistence. So uh, in the pre-Civil War period, the Democrats from the South dominated uh, the American political system uh, from the second party system of the 1830s right up to the Civil War. And what that meant is democratic dominance of government meant that there were very few opportunities for an opposition party, the Whigs at that time, or later the Republicans, to change tariff policy. Throughout most of U.S. history, you've needed unified control of government. The same party had to control the House, the Senate, and the presidency to institute change, and there are very few times when you don't either have divided government or unified government uh, in terms of one party. In the second period, they talked about restriction. Why couldn't the Democrats, why weren't forces in favor of free trade over, 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 uh, able to overturn those high tariffs? Well, that means the Democratic Party would have to do that. They only were in office with unified government twice over a very long span from 1861 to 1933. They did, in fact, in both those uh, uh, cases, reduce tariffs, uh, but they found it very politically difficult to do so, and they were quickly reversed when the Republicans came back into office. So there's an underlying po political reason as well for why you get these uh, long periods of persistence, and the Democratic dominance from uh, 1933 to 1993 uh, largely account for the status quo bias uh, in that period. Now, of course, since 1993, we've had many more switches of government, many more switches between unified control, and so that introduces some turbulence to U.S. trade policy. But in the past, um, usually one party has dominated long stretches of uh, U.S. trade policy history. So that's sort of the broad, uh, very over, broad overview of uh, explaining these three periods of uh, uh, the rise and fall of tariffs in the pre-Civil War period, the high maintenance of uh, protective tariffs during the uh, post-Civil War period, and then this big uh, decline. I get into the reasons for all these things in the book. Happy to answer more questions during the Q&A. But now I'd like to just turn to some various themes uh, that come out from the book. Because once again, I can't go through all the episodes, uh, interesting though they may be, uh, at least to me. Uh, here's some of the themes that, recurring themes that occur throughout history. One is uh, the United States has always been concerned about foreign unfair trade practices. Another is that presidents usually don't know too much about international trade. Partisan positions are rooted in economic geography. I've already alluded to that. And populists are always uh, upset with the status quo. So let me just give you a few examples of each of these. You might be aware that USTR every year reports to Congress uh, issues a very large uh, document uh, on foreign unfair trade practices, cataloging them. Here's the first. It was in 1793 issued by Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. 
And uh, if you read this document, uh, what you'll find is just a litany of complaints about how other countries treat our commerce unfairly, and we ought to do something about it. And he says, yes, we should be negotiating uh, on equal terms uh, to get rid of these things, but if they don't, if other countries don't improve their uh, treatment of U.S. commerce, we should retaliate against them. So right from the beginning, there we have this chip on our shoulder about how other countries are treating our commerce and uh, uh, introducing the idea of retaliation. Uh, the, the Washington administration did not follow through, and many administrations did not for some time, but you can understand uh, that this goes right back to, uh, to the beginning. The second theme, presidents don't understand much about uh, trade policy. Um, nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, there are many issues on, on one's plate, uh, and there's uh, nothing to be said about that except for, I'll just give you some stories. This is a cartoon of, uh, from uh, Harper's Weekly uh, in 1880 when General Winfield Scott Hancock was the Democratic nominee for president. You may not have heard of him, even though his statue is on one of the uh, circles around uh, here in Washington, uh, but uh, he was obviously not elected. He was a famous Civil War general, and here he is whispering to someone because the major platform of the Democratic Party in the 1880 election was uh, under the slogan of a tariff for revenue only. Talk about a rousing theme that is sure to bring out the voters. We want a tariff for revenue only, not for protection. And here he is whispering to his comrade uh, in arms, uh, saying, who is tariff and why is he for revenue only? <laughs> and what's sort of odd about this is, this is the leader of the ticket. He should probably understand what the, the party's platform is, um, but it's uh, not clear that he even understands uh, what the tariff is for. Many other examples of this, uh, when President Grover Cleveland was elected in 1884, he asked one of his uh, major campaign advisors, now that I'm president, what should I do? What should be the major objectives of my administration? And his aide said, well, I think you really ought to look at the tariff. I think the tariff is ripe for reform. And he put his head down into his hands for about two minutes and raised it and said, I know nothing about the tariff. Um, how can this possibly be a major uh, you know, thrust of my administration? And it turns out he actually did learn, and he made uh, tariff reform uh, a big objective of his administration. Uh, he failed. FDR. Um, I'll talk about Cordell Hull and the movement towards trade agreements and freer trade in a moment in the 1930s. FDR did not have any strong uh, political preconception about uh, what trade policy. In fact, the, the Roosevelt uh, campaign team and administration was divided between New Dealers, who want to manage trade, and Southern Democrats who want lower tariffs and freer trade. And he was presented during the uh, election campaign of 1932 with two competing drafts of a speech he could give on trade policy. And what he said to his aides is he said, weave them together, <laughs> which were completely contradictory. He's saying trade policy should go in different directions. And uh, his uh, uh, memoir of, of speechwriter said, you know, it was one of the most difficult things I had to do, trying to put these two things, incompatible things together. And when he presented Roosevelt with the draft, he said, see, that wasn't too hard, was it? Um, the speechwriter didn't agree, but uh, Roosevelt didn't have any problem with sort of a contradictory stance in, in terms of uh, trade policy. Um, and then, of course, we have our current president, who apparently asked Angela Merkel 11 times uh, to, that the U.S. want to reach a bilateral trade agreement with Germany, only to be told 11 times that uh, Germany doesn't have an independent trade policy, that you have to negotiate with the EU, uh, and so you can't you know, raise that with me directly. Um, once again, all presidents have to learn something about trade policy. Um, the political parties, usually divided on trade policy. This obviously goes way back. It has economic roots because it depends upon the region of the country that you're representing. So here's just some campaign slogans from uh, uh, days of old. That's a Republican uh, on the left uh, advocating a protective tariff, uh, tariff reformers, the Democrats on the right from the 1888 election. Uh, and the 1888 election, is, uh, that was called the Great Tariff Debate of 1888. 
because it was the one presidential election that really truly did hinge uh, on trade policy. But here's the interesting thing, of course, whenever you hear me say the Republicans were for protection, the Democrats were for freer trade, that should obviously be jarring because that's not the, the standard uh, position of the party today, and that's because they switched places. And here's exactly when they switched places. So this is tracking uh, House voting on tariff bills, reds Republicans, blues uh, uh, Democrats, and it's the share of votes in favor of lower tariffs or against higher tariffs. Uh, so the Democrats are up top there because Southern Democrats wanted lower tariffs or certainly not higher tariffs for much of the late 19th century and early 20th century, very consistent that way. That's because they represented the South, which was sort of the export platform of the United States. The Republicans came from the North. They were very much against that. They wanted to maintain high tariffs. And what you can see there is in the 18, 1930s, the Republicans begin to fluctuate a bit. And by uh, 1940, 1950, Republicans had come on board with lower tariffs. Um, and that's when we get this period right in here where there's this bipartisan consensus, and you can't really tell much difference between Republicans and Democrats in terms of their voting patterns. But after NAFTA, they really begin to diverge. And that's when the Democrats' support for open trade uh, really begins to fall and plummet, and the Republicans remain relatively high. The big question, of course, is are we undergoing another uh, realignment in terms of the parties and trade, at least in terms of the Republicans having less support for free trade under President Trump? Uh, that, of course, remains to be seen. Populists always sort of oppose the status quo. So here's sort of a, a populist, uh, uh, if you will, cartoon from the late 19th century, basically saying Congress is in the pocket of all these special interests, and that's what drives our trade policy, and we have the, these high tariffs, which just help out the big fat cats, and therefore we populists want low tariffs because we're pro-consumer and we're anti-big business, and therefore we need uh, lower tariffs. And here's an, another cartoon in that line saying the farmer here, uh, they feed the cow, but it's the capitalist there on the right who uh, gets all the milk. So uh, we populists are in favor of free trade. Well, are populists today in favor of free trade? Well, not if you listen to Bernie Sanders, of course, who describes himself to some extent as a populist. And I love his answer to this question here where he's asked about NAFTA and uh, WTO and other things like that. And uh, the question is, so basically there's never been a single trade agreement this country has negotiated that you've been comfortable with. Sanders, that's correct. So now, uh, what does he say? Well. These trade agreements, they're for big business. They're not for consumers. Um, that's just helping out multinationals. So the populist position has always been we're against the big corporations. If we have high tariffs, we're against high tariffs. If we have low tariffs, we're against low tariffs because it's just helping out the big business and the status quo. So there's not some sort of uh, entrenched uh, uh, true populist view on trade policy. Dan mentioned some of the myths that I talked about. I can just briefly sketch out some of them uh, that come up recurringly, or you might have heard about. He mentioned, uh, for example, that uh, some people believe that it really wasn't slavery, it was tariffs. That was really the cause between the North-South break in terms of the Civil War. Absolutely untrue, uh, because the South basically had dictated U.S. tariff policy since 1833. They won. The tariff levels were less than 20% at the outbreak of the Civil War. Um, they just passed a tariff act in 1857. Their previous tariff act was in 1846, also brought tariffs down. The South won. They had no complaint about trade policy. They had basically set the agenda. Um, so that's uh, uh, one myth. Protectionism made America great. I have a whole section of the book on why did the United States grow so rapidly in the late, late 19th century when tariffs were so high? A couple things to be pointed out there. First of all, we industrialized very rapidly from 1840 to 1860 when, under a regime of low tariffs. Uh, in fact, we, we had fairly continuous industrialization uh, from the early 1820s or so, uh, uninterrupted by high tariffs or low tariffs. 
When we look at the late 19th century period in particular, when the tariffs were high on certain uh, manufactured goods, um, those were, first of all, high tariffs on intermediate goods as well, which hurt downstream producers. If you look at where the productivity growth and the extensive growth in the US economy was, it was largely in the service sector. Manufacturing did not expand a lot as a share of the economy in the, late, in the Civil War period. There are a lot of reasons why uh, it's not the case that um, we grew rapidly because we had these high tariffs. And in addition, we weren't really a closed economy in the late 19th century. We weren't so isolationist as it often is portrayed. We were open to capital flows. We were open to immigration. We were open to the best technology of the world. We were quite an open economy on many dimensions, and we didn't have a lot of inefficient domestic producers that were being sheltered by these tariffs because we had a lot of robust domestic competition. And so uh, the tariff was not really responsible for our growth in the late 19th century. Smoot Hawley caused the Great Depression. As I mentioned, uh, monetary factors and financial factors uh, played a much larger role than any change in uh, uh, tariff policy. And uh, the post-World War II tariff reductions were not a massive giveaway to other countries. It was in uh, US national strategic, economic, and foreign policy interests at the time. Um, and that's the way policymakers viewed it. I do uh, talk a little bit about, uh, there's various episodes that are, I think are really interesting. Can't really get into some of the details. One is, uh, if you think that President Trump has big changes in mind for US trade policy, let's go back to the Jefferson administration, where he shut down all foreign trade for a little over a year. Shut it down completely. Closed all the ports, closed all the roads, no international trade. Um, that was quite a shock um, and, uh, uh, and uh, obviously very controversial. Uh, it's not raising tariffs a little bit, it's actually shutting down trade. So it's a very interesting uh, experiment. If we think that, uh, you know, sort of the, the public debate these days has been so, uh, uh, you know, brought down low because of social media and uh, cable news and things of that sort, um, well, here's how you'd have to respond to President Jefferson back then. There's a letter uh, to him from a merchant in Boston, and you can imagine how merchants in any port city viewed this embargo. It says, Dear President Jefferson, first of all, in February 1808, the embargo has only been in place for a little over a month. You are a friend to the disorder of the peace and the greatest enemy of the whole world. That's the first sentence of the letter, and it goes downhill from there. <laughs> Okay, so you can read this in the Library of Congress. The last line is something like a threat, like, may Mr. Jefferson serve his country by leaving it immediately. And I urge you not to write such letters today because you'll get on a Secret Service watch list. Um, but apparently this person who did not sign his name is called a true Republican, uh, Republican not meaning the Republican Party at the time, but a true patriot for the country, thinks the embargo is a very bad idea that's damaging for the U.S. economy. In fact, I've done some calculations suggesting it cost the U.S. about 5% of GDP within six months, which is a very se uh, severe recession when you think of the Great Recession, which we all uh, were so concerned about, had a very small effect on overall GDP. I talk about the tariff of abominations, which deserves its name. Um, one of the theme, themes with uh, the Jefferson embargo, the tariff of abominations, and the Smoot-Hawley tariff, Merchants and producers were not asking for them. The merchants were not asking the Jefferson administration to uh, have a total embargo on, on trade. Um, this is something Thomas Jefferson thought of himself. The tariff of abominations was not a response to uh, pressure groups uh, and interest groups wanting higher tariffs. It was a political scheme hatched uh, by the Andrew Jackson forces to try to discredit the administration of John Quincy Adams and to win the election of 1828. And of course, it had a horrible uh, backfire effect in terms of making, uh, you know, making uh, U.S. politics very divisive. Um, but it's just an indication that at times, you know, I, I seem to have suggested always that there are these underlying economic interests which are driving 
uh, trade policy um, uh, voting in Congress. That's not always the case. Sometimes politicians use trade policy for their own political purposes, and it usually doesn't work out so well. And one example of that is the uh, Smoot-Hawley tariff, um, which we can talk about a bit, but I think in the interest of time, I'll skip ahead, talk just a moment about Cordell Hull. Another point in the book is that while I talk about these underlying interests as sort of driving things, individuals do matter. And at certain points in history, individuals can change the course of trade policy history, and Cordell Hull is one example of that, who fought the battle within the Roosevelt administration against those in favor of the New Deal and managed trade um, to keep trade open. Um, he was America's longest-serving Secretary of State from 1933 to 1944, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1944, not just for his work in creating the United Nations, but for his works on trade policy and trying to keep an uh, open and fair access to the world markets. Um, and so uh, I think he's an underheralded figure. This is the way trade policy was viewed during his time and into the 1940s and the post-war period. Cordell Hull, more than anyone, uh, emphasized the idea that world peace uh, can be abetted by an uh, 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 open, non-discriminatory uh, trade regime, which is why it got on the stamp, and is illustrated here, I think, exquisitely by the great Washington Post cartoonist Herb Block, who many of you may remember, but I see some very young faces who you won't know who I'm talking about, but he was the uh, major uh, cartoonist for the Washington Post for many years. This is one of his first cartoons, and it was published in 1947, and it illustrates exactly this mindset uh, of uh, the, the early post-war period. We have trade freedom at the bottom there, supporting political cooperation, which is supporting world peace. And off on the side, uh, behind the curtain, is the tariff lobby shooting peas at uh, 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 tariff freedom, um, which would ultimately undermine world peace, so it was thought. Um, this exactly sort of uh, summarizes the debate uh, in the United States in the uh, late, uh, late 1940s. So where are we today? So obviously a lot of history. Uh, I don't try to emphasize uh, current developments so much, but um, there has been a renewed disenchantment with trade. I think there are many reasons for that. Uh, with Cordell Hull, trade policy was linked to foreign policy, national security concerns, and the post-Cold War period, that link has been uh, uh, frayed to some extent. Um, we've had greatly increased trade from developing countries, which we have not seen earlier in earlier episodes of U.S. trade policy history, where we trade mainly with Britain uh, and Canada um, and Western European countries. And in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, trade as a share of GDP grew quite dramatically, which understandably would lead to uh, political friction. So I think NAFTA and the China shock, um, greatly beneficial to the United States in terms of uh, um, uh, greater access to uh, uh, cheaper foreign goods, um, expansion of US exports and things of that sort, but uh, you cannot have that expansion of trade without uh, creating some uh, dislocated workers and some loser, losers who want to uh, fight against that. Declining employment and manufacturing, driven largely by technology, but still sometimes attributed to trade, leads to this anxiety uh, among uh, working class voters that I think fuels uh, trade uh, uh, politics that we see today. Uh, and all this leads to uh, increased partisanship. So now we are in an America first trade policy mode, which is still a work in progress, and we'll have to see how that uh, develops. Um, a couple of months ago, President Trump uh, said he wanted tariffs. Bring me some tariffs. That's finally happening. Uh, so with the Section 201 actions that we've just seen, um, we'll have to see whether this is just a few ca trade cases as every president faces. You know, President Obama had the tire tariffs, President Bush had the steel tariffs, uh, President Clinton had the lamb tariffs, President Reagan had uh, uh, machine tools and other Section 201 actions, motorcycles. Every president gets a few of these cases. We'll have to see whether there's going to be a trend 
or whether it's just uh, a momentary blip. But I'd like to come back uh, and then conclude with sort of the main theme, which is on these deeper underlying forces which lead to a status quo bias. The reason why there's a status quo bias is to change from existing policies, whether it's high tariffs or low tariffs, mean you're taking away something from someone and they're going to resist. So even though the Democrats took over in the mid late 19th century and wanted to attack those high tariffs, they found it very hard to do so because you're taking something away from an entrenched interest that has an, uh, a, status, a, 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 a material interest in the status quo. We're now in an era of relatively low tariffs where it may be difficult for the current administration or any administration going forward to reverse that and raise tariffs because then again, you're taking away something from someone who values it. So I am told, and I'm sure uh, as Washington insiders here, you know that when President Trump was considering withdrawing from NAFTA uh, early on in his administration, his Secretary of Agriculture came to the Oval Office and presented with a picture, something like this, showing the dependence of certain states in the Midwest on agricultural exports to Mexico and was told, Mr. President, if you take away NAFTA or pull out of NAFTA, you're going to be hurting the very constituents who voted for you because they have greater access to the Mexican market as a result of NAFTA, and they, therefore they benefit from it. Even if that had no impact with the, with the president whatsoever, what that means is you're going to be hurting someone by pulling out of NAFTA. So there's groups out there that have a, 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 a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, and so it will be a trade policy battle uh, if there is a move to uh, uh, pull out of NAFTA. The other thing that gives me some consolation is that when you look at public opinion polls in terms of whether you think trade is an opportunity or whether trade is a threat, these numbers, which have always been relatively you know, even or moving up and down one direction, they've really widened just in the past few years where many, many more Americans view international trade as an opportunity and not a threat. And therefore, I think any movement towards a major trade war would have some repercussions, I would think, in terms of the American public, in terms of whether we want to uh, go there. So just some final takeaways. Trade's always been a source of domestic political content, uh, uh, conflict, sort of a constant throughout US history. However, we are in this era of renewed partisan conflict uh, over trade policy. Um, we'll have to see whether the strong status quo that is held in the past will continue to hold in the future. But I hopefully this book will provide some historical perspective on the debates we're having today. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Oh, do you want to go up? Thanks, Dan, for inviting me, and thanks, Cato, for inviting me. Um, it really is uh, not only a pleasure, but an honor for me to talk about uh, Doug Irvin's new book. Having been uh, read all of the others, I would say um, the honor, however, does not... Uh, I could say that I've read every word or every page of the 673 pages in the book and the 10,000 or so footnotes. Uh, that would be a lie of Trumpian proportions. Uh, but I have read deeply in it, and it really is a pleasure uh, to have done so. Dan didn't mention, he mentioned in passing, um, I should also say two other things. One, I have a bias in the sense that only Doug Irwin could have dug out an article I wrote on the Payne Aldrich tariff in the Democratic Party over 40 years ago and cited it in a current book here in 2018. Uh, the other side of that, though, is another bias, I guess. I admire this book, uh, but still my favorite book of all of Doug's books is Against the Tide, the intellectual free, uh, 
History of Free Trade. For those of you who have not read it, it is an elegant, elegant book. And while this book really has a lot, as he's gone over and others have talked about, a lot to, um, a lot to commend it. And I re- will keep reading it, and I'm sure, uh, days and weeks and months uh, from now. Uh, I would really highly recommend Against the Tide. Uh, it, like this book, I think, uh, has enduring themes uh, that really bring us right to today, even though it was written two decades ago. Um, I'm, there's been a lot. Dan Eikenson talked about what is in the, the, the history of the, of the, much of the history that, that, uh, that uh, Doug goes into, and Doug himself went into a lot of detail. I think, as, I, as I've, they have said, and I agree, that this is book that is filled with fa- filled with facts, but it also is tied to themes that are clear uh, and decisive, and that one can follow. And you can see in the book what Doug went through in a great hurry here. Uh, like Dan Eikenson, I was uh, since this is part of our more more recent history, I was happy to see a measured view of the Reagan administration, since the view of the Reagan administration with Mr. Lighthizer at USTR is that it was a, a reversion to protectionism. There were ways in which that administration certainly fell from grace for those of us who were free traders. But you, the other side of it is they were still pushing the pres- from the president on down for such things as the Eurogar round and moving toward the US-Canadian and ultimately to the NAFTA, which came after their time. So it, was a, it is a balanced view. I also think that the, and I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on this, that the themes of economic ge- geography and the regionalism, certainly for much of our history, um, is very persuasive. But that brings me to what I really want to spend my time at with, uh, which is not so much the full book, but the last two chapters. And um, what I'm really going to be talking about is, I mean, Doug is sitting here correctly basking in the the plaudits of this book. But what I really want to talk about is his next book, because I won't even get off his ass and go back (laughs) to the Library of Congress or wherever and really focus in on the last two decades. In a book that spans two centuries, there's no way that he could have spent a lot of time in the years since the 1990s and certainly after 2000. And that's where my questions um, come in terms of the themes that are, in the, uh, that are in this book. It is not so much, I think, that I, would, that I would challenge or say things have changed in terms of the regionalism or the economic geography, uh, the, high, the transactionalism that you get with, with, uh, with trade policy, it's not just in the United States, but with us. But that I think there are other things that overlay this particular regional or transactional approach. And let me just start, I mean, the, how do we explain, I would say, I would start, though I think it get, becomes more important after 2000, with the NAFTA debate. It is true, it is there, and Doug has details about this, that this, you also, you could break it down in terms of the kind of ge- economic geography that he's talked about, and there are economic interests here. But the fact that the, not just with NAFTA, but with, with the trade, with the, with the uh, earlier, the Tokyo Round and others, that the trade policy was going inside the border. You were moving toward issues that were highly volatile in terms of domestic politics, 
in terms of social issues and economic issues that were mostly, that were largely, had been counted as domestic. And I don't think economic, the economic geography can explain the incursion into the trade debate, the wholesale in NAFTA and since then of interests such as the labor movement, the environmental movement, the consumer movement, debates over GMOs, debates over regulation, debates over services. These go beyond, they may have in some ways a geographic base, but these go beyond. These organizations are national organizations. And so their impingement and their wholesale move into, into the trade debate, I think begins to turn things so that we really have on top of the history that Doug went to, I think another set of, of, of factors that we, that we have to take into account. And <clears throat> the other thing is, and let me, take, let me tie this then to the parties. I think increasingly the Democratic Party or certainly certain elements of it wanted to use trade policy and trade agreements to create, well, how should I say it? A new deal in the sky or a new deal internationally. In other words, to translate into our international trade agreements the kinds of policies, priorities that they had at home. And the Democrats, the Republicans fought a kind of rear guard action against this. And again, I would go back to whether it's labor or the whole question of the environment, climate change, um, I would say that Christia Freeland, uh, the Canadian foreign minister now in the change of NAFTA, a classic example of, of a liberal, classic 20th century liberal, wants indigenous rights. Uh, and she also, and this is also, some of you may have known, um, may have heard, wants the United States to rescind or repeal all the state, <laughs> the right to work laws. So the, my point is that you're getting, you, you got this, incursion of new issues that are not explicable totally in terms of, ec of economic geography. Um, I also would, uh, along that line, the saying with the political parties, Doug has in, uh, and he didn't go into all of them, but he has in the book a number of charts about voting patterns. But I think it, it, it's hard to explain just in terms of, say, local economic interests in the South versus Pennsylvania versus, uh, say, Nebraska. The fact that since the 1990s, beginning with NAFTA, but certainly in the Bush years and the Obama years, uh, and I'm taking the House of Representatives here as my key barometer, uh, two-thirds of Democrats, House Democrats, have voted against new trade agreements. It's not every time. It's a rough estimate. On the other hand, on the Republican side, you've had two-thirds of Republicans generally supporting free trade agreements. This, this included um, starting with, with Clinton, whom they detested, and ends, just we have to remember this with the, with the, with the, new, with the Trump presidency, it ends just two and a half years ago with three-quarters of Republicans who really disliked Obama voting for trade promotion authority. So we've got this curious uh, change in, that has to do with the ideology of the parties that, is overlay, uh, that overlays, I think, again, the economic ge geography that, that persists through so much of U.S. history. Uh, one footnote there, uh, I noticed when, when Doug was talking that pop populists tend to be, to, to be against trade. Uh, that's not true with the Tea Party populists. When the Tea Party populists came to uh, Washington in 2011, I remember there were all these, these uh, things written that they were going to be nationalists. They were. 
they would be narrow, but they saw free trade as an extension of deregulation. And so they voted much more in favor of, let's say, the Colombia or Peru agreements than your traditional Republican. So it's not always true. Beyond that, um, I think we would have to, particularly in the last two decades, uh, and this comes more from the executive, it is not in terms of voting patterns in the Congress, I understand that, but I don't think you can, we can um, ignore the increasing impingement of foreign policy on trade policy. I mean, to take it's a couple of examples, in the Bush administration, some of you who were around then will recall that Mr. Zelik was very explicit about this. In fact, he made several speeches in which he, and I think this was inevitable when you get, as the Bush administration did, its major push was for bilateral agreements. When, you, when the president and the White House are looking at bilateral agreements, they, don't, they do look mostly, probably, at economic, the economic results. But they're also looking at foreign policy, security, those kinds of things. And so Zelik was very explicit that foreign policy, democracy, and in, his, and in the case of the Bush administration, support for the war in Iraq would be an important factor in the choice of our free trade agreement partners. For that reason, Australia was moved to the top of the list. New Zealand was kept down because of its uh, policy about nuclear submarines in its ports. You know, free trade agreements like Morocco and Oman under, under Bush were certainly not, had little importance uh, uh, economically. I would also argue that under Obama, who came, as I think Doug talks about this in the book, who came to office as before Trump, the, the most anti-trade of our recent presidents, turned around partly, I do not doubt, because his economic advisors within a year were telling him this is a way to get us out of the ditch, one way, but also by what was happening in Asia. The North Koreans were lobbing missiles in every direction. The Chinese had turned around from really their peaceful uh, development. And <clears throat> you had Hillary Clinton going all over Asia saying the United States is back. And so I think that was, a, was a, 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 an important factor uh, in, the, in the reason that the president, I think, t t turned, turned around. Uh, and I think you know, that is going to be, that, that, is, that, is, that is true today. I mean, I think the implications of, certainly there were negative economic implications of the United States withdrawal from the TPP. Uh, but the TPP had marginal, certainly we, I think most of us, and certainly at Cato myself, I have a colleague at AEI who didn't, but he didn't think it was real enough. It had marginal economic benefits. But the key, I think, most important thing about it was it was a strategic signal that the United States was, as Hillary said, we are, Hillary Clinton said, we are back in Asia. Uh, and I want to just end with one final uh, note, and that is looking forward. Uh, how and how the United States actually, uh, and I should say as a footnote, an administration that I distrust in almost everything it does in trade, how the United States is actually going to handle the challenge of China, which is an economic challenge, a trade challenge, ch challenge, an investment challenge. But here we have, for the first time, and this was not true with Japan, a competitor, which is like, which is like it could be a military uh, opponent of the United States, a strategic competitor, whose trade policy is rooted in authoritarian government. The Chinese argue that they want to close the internet to US and other companies because of domestic order 
and because of Chinese sovereignty. And so in here you get a situation where this administration and the subsequent administrations are going to face, face uh, an opponent, if you will, an ally potentially in trade, uh, whose very roots, political roots, are very different and antithetical to the United States. And that presents the kind of challenge that I think, despite the continuity that uh, Doug talked about, which I think did go through most of the last 200 years, is going to be, I think, a big change. Thank you very much. So, Doug, do you want to respond to some of the thoughts that uh, Claude uh, Two agreements and one clarification. So I absolutely agree on trade and foreign policy. I st still think they're linked. Uh, I, uh, uh, so I take that. Uh, I agree completely that the big challenge is China, particularly in the next decade or so. And that transcends the Trump administration. That's any administration that's going to face that challenge. Um, and then the big question that you raised about why um, you know, we see these other sort of not economic interest groups uh, weighing in on trade, uh, labor, environment, and all those sort of concerns. I think that's because you're, you're absolutely right. The issues have moved away from tariffs to uh, trade agreements and regulations. And that's really the whole issue is changing. So a lot of the history is just the tariff rate. And uh, we're moving away from that. Tariffs are pretty low, obviously not zero. We, uh, you know, uh, but um, the issue of trade policy has really changed, and that, I think, accounts for that. And you're right that my framework doesn't really um, address that so much since I'm focused so much on the evolution of tariffs over time. That's the so, next book. That's the next book. <laughs> <laughs> I think the framework worked very well for the period covered. Right. Uh, but I, I have one question about it, though. What's, what seems unique is that from the early 30s until today, we went from an effective tariff on dutiable imports of about 60% to about 5%. I mean, that's a precipitous drop relative to the first 150 years. Uh, how did that happen? To me, that's, that shows something else is going on. So on, there were a variety of forces. Of course, there was this national security concern as well, but was it offering up non-tariff uh, administrative protectionism, like the anti-dumping law, the countervailing duty law, the safeguards law, that helped us achieve the, these lower tariffs? And what does that say? About Great question. Um, and in fact, there's a whole five to 10 page section of the book exactly on that issue about why tariffs fell, fell down so much. I don't know whether you recall the chart, but you're absolutely right. 60% average duties on dutiable imports in 1932 down to uh, basically 12% by 1950, and then uh, falling down to 5% thereafter. So going from 60 to 12 within the span of 10 years, that's astounding change. The question is why? This is during the 1940s, uh, 19, 19, yes, 1940s largely when this happens, uh, particularly in the early post-war period. The only conference was the GATT. The only change in tariff rates was the GATT. So what was driving this? And first of all, and that raises the question too, would Congress have agreed to cut the tariff from 60% to 12% within the span of five or 10 years? And I don't think they would have. So what happened? Turns out, here's where the you know, very interesting little details matter. Two thirds of US tariffs historically have been specific duties. That's it is a dollar nominal amount per imported quantity, not an ad valorem tax, which is a percentage. Because it was a specific duty, uh, we had high inflation rates during uh, the World War II and in particular the post-war period. It took down the average tariff rate on imports. So my calculations have, have uh, basically indicate that about 80% 
of the post-war tariff reduction from 1932 to 1960, 80% was due to higher inflation only 20% due to actual t tariff rate cuts in trade agreements. So the answer to the question is luck. How did that happen? Most wars have been followed by periods of deflation. After the Civil War, after World War I, we had big deflation. And if you look at those charts, you'll see after wars, the tariff rates jumped because of that specific duty effect. No one knew what was gonna happen at the price level in the United States after World War II. The reason, of course, we had the inflation was is we weren't on the gold standard. We, uh, the Federal Reserve was independent, uh, and so uh, that was one means of financing the war. So uh, it was completely, largely unanticipated. Tariff Commission documents at the time show that and, and say that explicitly. No one knows what's going to happen to the price level. And it happened surreptitiously. Why was it politically feasible for it to, uh, to occur? Why did Congress not try to offset it? Because imports as a share of GDP were about 2 to 3% because Japan has been wiped out, Western Europe's in complete disarray, the war ends. Often when wars end, particularly the War of 1812 and some of the others, we're faced with an influx of imports that leads to a protectionist reaction. After World War II, there's no international competition. Imports aren't surging in, so the tariff could have gone down to 5% and no one would have cared uh, because they wouldn't have affected trade that much. So it's a very unique uh, period. It's a very unique set of circumstances that leads to that dramatic drop. How, how do we explain that the other nations went along with this because they were economically weak, the, the Cold War? I mean, oh. I can understand on our side, it's, it's a great thing because we're strong. But what about the other? Well, first of all, they had exchange controls. Yeah. So uh, tariffs were not really the binding and straight in the, in the 1940s and 1950s. So the way I put it is this way. If, uh, let's say you want to import something and you face a tax of 40, 50 percent, obviously that's an impediment. What if the tax was zero? but you had to ask the central bank permission to get access to foreign exchange. That, that's the real binding constraint. So uh, the European countries and Japan and others, uh, they had much more modest tariff levels, but the, the tariffs, they controlled who had access to the foreign exchange to buy imports. Um, so in effect, there was protection. Absolutely, yes. Okay. And that's completely outside the GATT, too. Right. So the GATT negotiations don't affect that, and it's really the liberalization of the current account by the late 1950s that allows trade to begin to respond um, as much as lower tariffs. Let, let me share you with uh, the audience if uh, anybody has questions. Oh, a lot of questions. I'm glad I turned that over. Please uh, wait for the, to be handed a mic and identify yourself and affiliation if you would. Let's start right here and then, then here. Uh, Dan Griswold with the uh, Mercatus Center and formerly with Cato. The, uh, can't recommend the book more highly. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Doug, my question is, you point out um, about 75 years between the, uh, the periods ran 75 years. If you believe in, you know, contra Tiev wave theory, right. we're due for another change. Uh, but you do, towards the end of the book, very helpfully and encouraging to those of us who support free trade, give several reasons why you don't think uh, the Trump presidency is going to be that kind of fundamental change. I just wondered if, for the encouragement of all of us, if you could just run through those. You talk about the globalization of business and, and other things. Um, I'll have to resurrect this from my memory because uh, you might probably remember it more uh, vividly than I do. But uh, I do talk about how uh, a lot of international trade is now in intermediate goods. 
And that makes it much more difficult to, that changes trade policy dynamics. So before we'd import final goods from abroad, they would compete with a domestic producer. And you can see why that domestic producer wouldn't want to stop those imports. Now with production chains, supply chains, um, uh, things of that sort, uh, Richard Baldwin said uh, raising a tariff is like putting up a, a, a wall in the middle of a factory. And that's much more disruptive to, for, to producers and uh, workers and um, uh, therefore is a little bit less likely to gain political support. So a lot of the history is particular uh, producer groups want high tariffs. Now a lot of the producer groups, they're dependent on imports uh, for sources of supply or for uh, competition in terms of what they're, where they're sourcing. And so uh, the producer groups, their interests have changed. And, that, and if we think that uh, there's sort of this memorable phrase which Mac has in his book, uh, U.S. trade policy is producer-driven. Um, just as the GATT, we say, is member-driven. Um, if we think it's producer-driven, a lot of producers are much more diversified uh, uh, today in a global market. And so that means that the benefits to some particular domestic constituency from raising tariffs is diminished. There's some other reasons, too, which I can't remember. But um, I think there are a number of reasons to why there's sort of momentum to maintaining uh, the system as it is. You know, that's... that's uh... Good point. This, that's been prevalent for a couple of decades, I think. I think it helped explain why we didn't go into a trade war during the Great Recession. You know, there was a lot of, lot of uh, lobbying, a lot of, from, from the import-consuming industries. Why can't, we, why can't that translate over into changes in the anti-dumping law, the countervailing duty law? Why is it, if that works uh, in that context, it doesn't translate over to having consuming industry interests represented in these cases? That's a great question. I mean, uh, when you go back to the origin of these laws, uh, as you well know, uh, Congress just wanted complaints away from them. So they set up the system of laws, which they fine-tune and adjust every now and then, to say, don't bring your complaints to us. We've got this apparatus to deal with it. Yeah. Um, as long as they don't perceive there's a problem, because they've sort of moved interests off uh, Capitol Hill, yeah. it's very difficult to get reform. And once again, there's the stage quo bias. So once you have the laws written a certain way, to say, oh, we want to introduce consumer interests into them, well, then there's, that's going to be opposed. And, then, and uh, what I sort of find sometimes is that um, presidents, when they're faced with one view or one position, they'll go with that. They don't have any strong view. But if they're faced with opposition, uh, then they have to think about that. So a great case is the decline of political influence of the steel industry. Mm -hmm. So it really wasn't until the early 1990s when uh, the steel consuming industries, SciTech and others, um, sort of made their voice heard in the trade policy debates, all of a sudden it became very difficult for administration to say, we'll give the steel industry whatever they want in terms of VRAs or what have you. Yeah, excellent. Did you? Let's go Thanks. Uh, Steve Charnovitz from George Washington University. Uh, congratulations, Doug, on a, another great book. So one thing you said this morning was that, or this afternoon, was that populists are always against the status quo. And so you talked about a couple of eras with the, uh, where that happened. But isn't another explanation is that the populace are against big business? Because that would explain the 19th century uh, against the, the tariffs and the 20th century against trade agreements and globalization, uh, populace opposing both of those. And the second thing is Claude talked about, said that everything is new now because we've got these non-geographic interests dominating trade policy. So I'm wondering, a part of it, to what extent did your research uncover the um, other interest groups, non-geographic interest groups that informed 
uh, and shaped trade policy in the period that you were examining? Thank you. First of all, I'll take your first point completely. Uh, what I meant by the status quo is they don't like big business. We're always going to have big business, whether we have high tariffs or low tariffs. So whatever trade policy regime they see at the moment, to the extent they, they think big business is benefiting from it, they're against it. So absolutely right on that. And on the second point, um, you know, because it's mainly historical work, you don't see some of these other uh, groups uh, really um, playing much of a, a role. So um, actually, I, I, there are a number of arguments made by sort of consumer groups in the late 19th century in favor of free trade, which were completely erroneous on economic grounds. Um, they weren't taken uh, very seriously, but uh, I guess the point is that consumer groups and some of these other groups historically have not played a big role. Um, in terms of shifting the direction of U.S. trade policy. It really has been producer-driven. But here's where Claude is right. I think if you're writing more about the current period and looking forward, the geographic uh, element is still there to some extent, but you have a lot of other issues that don't have sharply defined geographic uh, nature to them. And so you'd have to modify the way you're thinking about it. Mac, you were referenced several times during the presentation, so question. First of all, Doug, thank you for your kind words about me, and thank you for writing a great book. Uh, your presentation, I thought, was very nice and very interesting as well. As the, but I one thing I think you'd probably underemphasized. You st stressed the role of Cordell Hull, but the, the mechanism which Cordell Hull advocated was essentially, as you suggested, congressional delegation. But a lot of the pushed, a lot of the dynamic, and at least some of the serious reduction in trade barriers, was because officials in the U.S. executive branch were essentially empowered to negotiate these in a in a political system, political process, where they would go, it would be in effect unless somehow Congress. Took action to re reverse them, and so there was a, a huge the process shift in power, which empowered a number of individuals in successive administrations, Republican and Democratic, to to negotiate reductions. Now, uh, current situation, we don't seem to have that kind of leadership in the Trade Representative's office. I gave a speech in April last year, and I said, "Why don't I go to the USTR?" and website and see what they're saying. So I, there's this big black page that said, <laughs> America that. First Trade Policy. <laughs> On the other hand, the language, the America First language was something that Bob Strauss could have used, uh, Bill Brock could have used. It was sort of, we're going to be tough now. We're going to get, you know, going to have fair, we're going to be fair. So some, so the question now, obviously, which is, jury is out. We don't know what to, but I would say in terms of the historical narrative, perhaps you didn't give enough emphasis to the fact that there was leadership in successive administrations that brought about at least a portion of this reduction, astonishing reduction in tariffs. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, it may not have been in the book, but I, uh, in the, my presentation, but I certainly hope it's in the book uh, because uh, you're absolutely right that uh, depoliticizing trade policy directly by giving it to administrative agencies or State Department negotiators or what have you, just taking it out of the hands of Congress made a huge difference. And the uh, Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act was a, a big institutional change in the way trade policy is made. So absolutely right on that, those points. But are we likely to see that? Again, or that continued? I mean, the Congress permanently, whether it's Democrat or Republican, uh, fiercely protective of its role, and now reacting against. So what? That's a question, so, not a statement. Yeah. So, so there's a big difference between 1940s, 50s, and 60s, 
and after from the 70s because the period Mac was talking about is when this uh, when the RTA initially took I, effect. I agree with Matt. I'm just, Mac, I'm just saying. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, uh, whatever agreement the president negotiated did not have to come back to Congress. Hmm. That's because they were just tariff agreements and they could put it into that's effect right. by executive order. And so that's a real big depoliticization. Unless they did something really odd, Congress would you know, not pull them back. But obviously, as the agreements uh, starting in 1974, that's why we have fast track involve all these other non-tariff elements. Everything has to be brought back to Congress. It's been repoliticized in that sense. And that's where uh, things become very difficult. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, lady in the third row. Hello, um, my name is Sharon Freeman, and I'm a small business owner. And I was, uh, well, first of all, thank you, and I look forward to reading your book. And I was intrigued by the question of how this administration will deal with the issue of China. And I just wanted to posit that I believe that it will never get there because the NAFTA negotiations are so complex and made complex by uh, the question of what's really the goal. If you say modernization, then it's starting to look like, you know, TPP or, or TTIP and, and, and to what end. And at the same time, it's uh, unmeasurable, okay? USITC is set up to measure tariff impact equivalents. And when you start getting into the kind of er areas of, um, of uh, you know, environment and, and so many others, labor, you can't quantify them. So I guess I throw the question back to you, which is what is your opinion about um, where this administration might go if it had the time, which it will not, but if it had the time to get there, where would it go on China? Well, I can only speculate, and I defer to people who are inside the Beltway and follow current trade policy a bit more closely than I do from remote New Hampshire. Uh, but I do think they will find the time to deal with China uh, because I think it's been a thrust of the campaign, and there are people in the administration who are very concerned about it. And I think, as Claude pointed out, um, it is a, a big issue uh, facing the United States. So how they deal with it, I don't know, but I think they will find the time in, in some dimension, but I... I, I mean, I think one of the questions is, are they going to act within the rules that exist? Are they going to use the tools that are available that will uh, enable any actions that they take to be at least considered uh, WTO compliant? Um, will they go rogue? We're getting definitely different messages from different people in the administration. Just this morning, Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, said something about sending the troops to the ramparts <laughs> in, 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 to contradict what Trump had said yesterday about uh, us not being in a trade war. So it's very confusing. This is the, like I said earlier, this is the reason that I, I retreated with Doug's book and curled up on the couch <laughs> to read it because I kept seeing all of these things. That uh, it's, it's very hard to, to gauge where it's going. It's for, I think that one difficulty is, and we could have a disagreement about this, on the things that I care about that the administration would do with regard to China, there are no really good WTO rules. The last WTO negotiation ended in 1995 where the internet was just a glimmer. And much of, the, much of this in terms of the great firewall in China and all of the things that they've done in terms of the high technology in the electronic area, you would have to really stretch WTO rules, it seems to me. That, <clears throat> excuse me, makes me nervous. So I think, I'm in favor of using the WTO. I would be in favor of a bit, a bilateral investment treaty, but I don't think it's going to do it in the time frame 
that we need. The other thing about the WTO is if you started something today, it could go on for years. And I'm not sure of the political process. Having said that, I, with this administration, I, I don't want them to do anything, actually, so. So, subject for an entirely different day. Yeah. Uh, the guy back there. Hi, my name is Tom Dunn. I'm a consultant. Um, I just have a question. Can you speak to the conflicting interests and the evolutionary process that actually created the current trade apparatus, trade policy apparatus, you know, starting with Kennedy and the special trade uh, representative competing with the, you know, the, the, the State Department of Commerce, and then how Carter took the uh, anti-dumping investigations from Treasury and the Tariff Commission became the International Trade Commission? What's the conflicting interest? It seems that every administration seems to want to, there's always this debate, should we create a Department of International Trade and merge a trade representative? We can just speak to the, the whole process. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, it depends on how far you want to go back and what dimension you want to deal with. I mean, the first tariff, tariff commission was in 1883, I believe, um, and it was just a temporary one. And the president had stacked it to uh, recommend no major changes in the tariff code because he wanted to keep the high protection duties at the time. The Tariff Commission surprisingly came back with a report saying, actually, yes, tariffs can be cut about 20% or so. He didn't exactly like that. Uh, that was the first time that Congress sort of allowed another entity to review it, uh, review U.S. trade policy. The Wilson administration, uh, uh, progressives, uh, uh, thought about getting experts um, they created the Tariff Commission, which Frank Tausig uh, uh, first headed. But uh, actually, uh, the President Wilson was very reluctant to uh, establish that in the first place uh, because he thought it might be a force for reinforcing the existing high duties that, he, that uh, President Wilson didn't like. Uh, so that was a, a temporary thing as well. There's a temporary tariff board. Um, moving a little bit more into the f uh, future, when we did move to these negotiated uh, trade agreements, the State Department was initially responsible for them. There's some very interesting characters in the State Department uh, who uh, uh, led that under Cordell Hull. Um, but interestingly, uh, Congress insisted in the early 1960s that we create the Special Trade Representative Office because it was viewed that the uh, State Department was too uh, soft on foreign interests and wasn't representing uh, American business uh, in a strong enough way in terms of the negotiating table. And what's interesting about that is that there's a very famous University of Chicago professor, Paul Douglas, who became a senator from Illinois. And he was a strong free trader. You might have heard of the Cobb-Douglas production function uh, and other things. Uh, he became a senator. And he, in his memoirs, talks about he, how he was appalled, even as a free trader, about how the State Department did not really represent American interests effectively when it came to commercial diplomacy. So even he uh, favored moving things to a U.S. Trade Representative's office. And then since then, USTR has morphed in, in different ways. Uh, obviously, in the, the anti-dumping and countervailing duties go back to 1916 in the uh, early uh, post-World War I period, uh, given initially to Treasury, then uh, shifted to Commerce uh, when Congress once again viewed Treasury as not being uh, an effective uh, enforcer of uh, the, those trade laws. So uh, Congress every now and then rearranges the furniture of U.S. trade policy in terms of which agencies are responsible for what, usually in the direction of stronger enforcement. Um, and I tell most of those stories at least briefly in the book. Who wants to ask the last question? <laughs> I'm sorry, that guy, guy back there. Well, all right, let's, let's, get, let's get them both, okay, since I, since I called on the... Uh, thank you. Uh, Jeff Pigman, University of Pretoria. Um, 
broad question on um, uh, the relationship between most favored nation uh, and reciprocity. Historically, do you see most favored nation and reciprocity ultimately working together or working at cross purposes? And I'd pose it particularly in the context of this prospective trade and services agreement, which were it to be agreed would, uh, I gather, be the first uh, agreement that we would be involved with that would not include uh, an MFN principle, but, but strictly on an opt-in uh, basis. Uh, thank you. Thanks. But before you answer, let's, yeah. let's get the second question. Uh, yes, my name is Roger Cochetti. I work with uh, private equity in the uh, technology sector, and all of the discussion has acknowledged that there's a linkage between foreign policy and, and trade policy, um, and certainly the discussion about Cordell Hull and the uh, assignment of trade agreements to the State Department sort of illustrates why since the 1940s trade policy and foreign policy have been sort of um, closely linked. But I was wondering if there's a historic precedent to this. In other words, um, we take it for granted today that if we don't like you as another country or if we think you're not nice, then we will cut off trade and we're not going to. And obviously forever, policy would be that if you're at war with another country, you're not going to trade with them if you can help it. But in between is all of the stuff that we have today, which is embargoes and limitations and ignoring them and doing all sorts of things, which grew up since Cordell Hull. But did that exist before that in the in the 19th century or in the 18th century? What, was it practice for American government to say, we don't like you, therefore we're not going to allow your imports or we're not going to allow exports? If some, is there, or did this really start with Cordell Hull? Thank you. Take the second question first. Uh, goes right back to the very beginning. So within the Washington administration, there was a big debate between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, where Thomas Jefferson wanted uh, to distinguish between imports and shipping coming from France versus Britain, saying we are friends with France, we don't like the British, we don't have a commercial agreement with the British like we do with the French, and so based uh, on whether we are friends or not or have agreements, we should discriminate uh, among various sources. Hamilton opposed that for various reasons. I go through it. It's a wonderful debate. It's a lot of fun. Um, and that's sort of where we get sort of non-discrimination. Um, as uh, uh, I, I think I might even recall that Washington in his farewell address talks about non-discrimination as being a very important principle, that we don't want to take sides. Um, and that uh, lasted for some time uh, with some exceptions. So it, it, th that debate is, has uh, been around for a long time. Um, in terms of MFN, um, you know, one of the best reports, government reports, in terms of the history of U.S. trade policy is one written by uh, Frank Tausig um, on uh, reciprocity and the Most Favored Nation Clause. And it was a uh, U.S. Tariff Commission document in 1919, and it points out all the problems and complications caused by unconditional MFN by trying to really discriminate against different countries based on their policy and having different policies regarding all the countries that we're engaged with. And uh, Tausig argued not only simplicity, but... Um, uh, a lot of reasons for unconditional MFN. It was not U.S. policy, ironically, because um, going back to the uh, U.S.-French agreement in, during uh, the Revolutionary War, uh, which introduced conditional MFN, 
um, sort of almost accidentally, we just signed the agreement without really knowing what we were signing on to in terms of that conditionality. Um, unconditional MFN doesn't come in until the Harding administration. And where I've pointed out to where individuals make a big difference, Will, William Culbertson, who was a, a, a commissioner at the Terror Commission, almost single-handedly got the whole State Department and the president to sign on to unconditional MFN as being the basis of U.S. Uh, commercial agreements, which I think served the U.S. Uh, very well from that period uh, uh, up to today. Um, whether it continues to do so with regard to China or uh, some of the services agreements, we'll have to see. That concludes our event. Please join us for, uh, for lunch upstairs and help thank our guests, speakers. Thank you very much. <laughs>